Thank you, music people. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles, please, now to Colossians chapter 2. This morning we're starting a new sermon series, uh, and it's actually a topical series, which in all my years of ministry, I'm not sure I've ever done that before. Not a whole series. I've done one or two topical messages at a time. But uh, I do want to emphasize that my approach is still going to be exegetical. I'll have a primary text that I'll be unpacking, and my applications and illustrations will be uh, uh, addressing the particular issues about which we'll be focusing our attention. Uh, there are a number of members over the past several years who've been asking uh, for this series that I would preach uh, on uh, contemporary cultural issues and how Scripture speaks to that and how a biblical worldview keeps us clear-minded and keeps us grounded and keeps us from wandering off into el error. And so the elders determined together that I would do this uh, beginning immediately after completing our study in the book of Hebrews, which we finished last week. Now, let me emphasize, this is not an apologetics class. All right, I'm going to try, try hard as I can not to be academic, but rather to be pastoral. So it's not going to be a polemic against the errors of our day. Uh, I will talk about some issues and some of their basic tenets. Uh, my focus, rather, is to be more positive on the wonder and the glory of the gospel and how it's so much better than anything the world could possibly come up with. It's not just don't fall for these lies because they're bad, even that's true, but rather... Look how the beauty and the glory and the truth of the Lord Jesus is so much better. That's where I want us to be focusing week after week. So this morning is kind of an introduction to our subject, and my title is either established in Christ or captive to the world. And Pastor Scott read from Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I want to uh, have three main headings in my message this morning, the peril the provision and the priority. Three peas in a pod. Peril, provision, and priority. The peril is the philosophy and empty deceit. Human philosophy and empty deceit. The provision are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ. And then finally, the priority is for you and me to have firmness of faith in Jesus Christ. So let's look first of all at the peril. What are we warned against here? The philosophy, human philosophy and empty deceit of the world. Look at verse 8 once again. I'm not going to go sequentially through the text. I'll be uh, kind of jumping back and forth to bring, bring forth the, the meaning of the text. In verse 8, uh, we read, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, parents, there is a war going on in our culture for the hearts and minds of your children. Now, that's an alarming statement, isn't it? And it's one we hear with increasing frequency. But the reality is that war is going on for your heart and mind as well. And if we think we're somehow immune to these human philosophies and these elementary, uh, uh, there's a footnote in the ESV. Uh, it says elemental spirits, but it really could be elemental principles. And I think that's probably a better translation of that word there. It's a single Greek word. But if you think, I am immune, I could never be deceived or led astray by these human philosophies, by these elemental principles, uh, you're probably kidding yourself. This is a war that's been going on for a very long time. Paul was warning about it 2,000 years ago, but it really goes back to creation. In the Garden of Eden, when Eve was deceived by the serpent. So this modern peril is nothing new. I want you to see what Paul says about it. He says it's rooted in human tradition. 
and the elemental principles of the world. What is the world? What does it mean to be worldly? You know, Jesus uh, said that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That speaks of all mankind. But when we speak of the world in this very particular sense, we're speaking about a value system that is opposed to the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ, that's opposed to the truth of God's word. And Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you because it hated me first. Now, I want you to stop and think a minute. Jesus said that in the upper room before he was going to be arrested and put to death by those who hated him. Who were those who hated him that wanted to put him to death, who opposed his rule and reign? The Romans couldn't have cared less about Jesus, to be honest with you. It was the Jewish religious authorities. In Jesus' teaching about the world, it was the most religious in that culture, the Jewish religious authorities. They were adamantly opposed to the rule and reign of Christ. They opposed and persecuted the early church. Scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, they were staunchly religious. They knew the Bible as they had it in the Old Testament. They they were experts in the law. But Jesus made it very clear. They didn't know God because they rejected his one and only son. See, we tend to think that the world is pagan atheism. It's those out there that are doing the really crazy and wild stuff. The world can infiltrate anyone. The world can infiltrate a Christian church, and we can become worldly simply by failing to hold high the rule and reign of Jesus in our own hearts and lives. So in Jesus' day, and and quite frankly in Paul's day, the world that these readers had to contend with at least included the Jewish religious authorities. One of the errors that Paul contends with in the book of Colossians is Jewish traditions. And we, we see, if you go through and read the whole book of Colossians, you'll see various Jewish traditions that were trying to be enforced upon the church that were not in accord with Christ. So the world can take many forms, including false religion, including false distorted Christianity. Now, the world, in this sense, is kind of like jello, right? Anybody here like jello? Sort of, you know? It's okay. My mother used to make this wonderful congealed salad with jello and some other stuff in it, and she'd pour it into a mold. Sometimes it was a heart. Sometimes it was like a little bunt can ring or bunt pan ring. It always came out shaped like the mold it was poured into. And the world takes whatever form of the mold it's poured into, and it can take the form of the most orthodox, even Reformed Baptist church if we allow ourselves to become worldly, if we allow ourselves to drift from the center, the centrality and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. The cultural issues that we're going to discuss in this series are largely rooted in secularism, largely rooted in a rejection of biblical truth. But let's be aware, when we talk about the world, it can creep in to us also, and we need to be on our guard. But Paul warns of these human traditions, these elemental principles of this world. world. Now, the word tradition, some people think, oh, tradition, that's a bad word. Tradition's not a bad word in itself. If it's a good tradition, it's a good thing, right? And there are traditions that we observe that are worth observing, and worth maintaining, but human traditions that are not rooted in Christ, not rooted in the revealed Word of God, are not good. 
They're harmful. And they're opposed to the Lord. These elemental spirits are the basic fundamental ideas that the world puts forward. Look down with me at Colossians 2 verse 20. Because we find the very same word here translated elemental spirits or elemental principles. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits or principles of the world, why as if you were still alive to the world do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teaching, they have an, indeed have an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so in this case, the world, these elemental principles involved a form of asceticism, of denying yourself simply for the, so, the sake of denying yourself. Jesus tells us to deny yourself, take up a cross and follow him. Put aside going your way so you can go his way. There are some who have said, oh, self-denial is an end in itself and that's a good thing. No, it's not. Self-denial in and of itself can never restrain fleshly indulgence. It can become a form of fleshly indulgence. It can feed your pride and many other things. It has an appearance of wisdom, but it's not based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is part of this world's value system. It is an elemental principle. Paul warns us against this, against philosophy and empty deceit. Now, do you know what the word philosophy means? It's two Greek words. Philos is love, sophos is wisdom. Philosophy means a love of wisdom. So the problem is not philosophy per se, if the wisdom you love is true. I was joking around with Satish Kiyadasi this past week. He's at Greenville Presbyterian Seminary. He told me one of his favorite courses is philosophy. Is it philosophy of religion? Is that correct? Something like that. And he said, I love that course. And I said, well, you know, the text this week is going to warn against philosophy. But uh, obviously, it's not the philosophy that he's studying at the seminary. The philosophy Paul's warning us about is opposed to Christ. Verse 3 tells us that it's in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. But any approach to wisdom that disregards Christ, that disregards his word, is empty. It's foolish. I'm going to mention just briefly some of the philosophies that we see uh, widely, widely embraced in the culture in which we live. There's naturalism. Naturalism is the idea that there's no God, that everything exists by natural processes, the random evolutionary process. There's secular humanism, which says man is the center of all things. Man is the measure of all things. Rather than a God-centered worldview, it's a man-centered worldview, and man is the arbiter of truth and righteousness and virtue. There's hedonism, which simply is living for pleasure. Uh, My pleasure is the highest good, and it's good and right to pursue that with all of my zeal. There's relativism, and we're going to spend some time talking about relativism that says everything's relative. There's no such thing as absolute truth. My truth is just as valid as your truth. And everybody has their own truth. And we're going to see how self-defeating that is. There's religious pluralism that says there are many ways to heaven. Uh, It regards, in fact, it regards the gospel of Jesus that says there's only one way to heaven. Well, that's bigotry. That's narrow-mindedness. And then there's a term you've probably not heard before. It's expressive individualism. And that's a term that's been coined uh, relatively recently. And what it teaches is each individual has within himself the right and the freedom to express who he is and what he is. And so it's okay for a a person who's a biological male to believe, I I feel like a a female, so I will express that in that way. 
A person who's same-sex attracted feels uh, like, well, I can express that because I'm an individual. And, and you see where expressive individualism goes. It's rooted, again, in that relativism that denies absolute truth. All of these philosophies employ plausible arguments. If you start with the premise that God's word is not the absolute final truth, then the arguments they make can sound very convincing. Once you disregard Jesus Christ as he is presented in the scriptures, not as you conceive of him to be, but as he's presented in the scriptures, once you disregard him, mark it down. You're going to be in very, very mushy and dangerous waters or, 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 or a path. Proverbs tells us the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And if there's no fear of God before your eyes, the Bible says that's a fool. And so there are many who, the Bible says, are foolish who think they are wise. And they're, they're touting their wisdom and proclaiming just how foolish Christians are. How foolish a biblical worldview is. And they're asserting their, their wisdom. In many cases, very convincingly, they're plausible arguments. But I want to say again, it is sheer folly to disregard the Lord Jesus as he is truly presented in the Scriptures, in the Gospel. Now, there are a lot of people today <clears throat> who will give, uh, they'll, 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 they'll give basic recognition to the person Jesus. They, they, they tip their hat, and, but they want to use Jesus to support their own personal views. Uh, there's a popular ad campaign uh, on, the, on TV now called He Gets Us. And uh, maybe you've seen some of those that uh, emphasizes that Jesus gets you. He understands you. And when the Super Bowl came out, it showed numerous people. And in every case, it was people who uh, would naturally, you'd expect them not to be very good friends. Uh, whether it was a racial difference or uh, somebody outside of an abortion clinic with a young uh, woman who was likely a patient there. Or, or uh, a, a, a policeman with a gangster. Uh, and and these, these very, very different relationships where one is washing the feet of the other. And at the end it says, he gets us. Now, washing feet is biblical, right? Jesus said we're to wash one of his feet. But the implication was, he gets us just as we are, and that's just fine. Well, a Christian responded to that. He made a similar type of video, and it showed all these different people who... Uh, in fact, at the bottom of, uh, of, the, of the link, it gives their stories online because they're all public in, in their testimonies. Uh, and one was a former witch. Another was a former gang leader. Another was a former jihadist. One was a former KKK, Ku Klux Klan member. One was a former drug addict. One was a former gang leader. One was a former porn star. One was a former abortionist. One was a former transgender person. And another was a former lesbian activist. Former. And then very quickly it goes, he saves us, he transforms us, he cleanses us, he restores us, he forgives us, he heals us, he delivers us, he redeems us, he loves us. And at the end it says, and such were some of you, which is straight out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's very interesting. <clears throat> a friend that I went to high school with, I haven't talked to since graduation over, you know, a million years ago, uh, wasn't too keen with that and wrote this, wow. It really is as judgmental and hateful as I had heard. Not a very Christ-like message at all. My question is, whose Christ is she referring to? 
Because that's exactly, Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's precisely what our Lord taught. It's precisely what our Lord came to do to bring deliverance to the captives. But once you abandon the absolute truth of the scriptures and his teaching about Christ, you create your own conception of Christ's likeness and anything goes. And again, people love to use their conception of Jesus to support their man-made traditions and philosophies. Now, the world's philosophy, it employs plausible arguments to delude God's people. Look with me at verse 4 once again. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. In the garden, the serpent came to Eve with plausible arguments. He convinced Eve that God was holding out, that he was stingy. He didn't want them to be as wise as he was. And then it says Eve saw three things that she hadn't noticed before. She looked at that forbidden, forbidden fruit, and she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desired to make one wise. See the plausible arguments that she bought? And so she ate and gave some to her husband. And that's why we have all the problems we have, because of plausible arguments. Once she stopped listening to God, once Adam stopped listening to God and began to listen to the serpent, these arguments made perfect sense. And the same is true many, many thousand years later. People don't want to embrace error because it makes them look foolish. They embrace things that we know to be errors because they think it makes them look wise. And they want to appear wise. They want to appear like they have the truth in their hip pocket. But again, Proverbs 12, 15 says, the fool, or excuse me, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, <clears throat> even though it's wrong and utterly foolish. So the enemy comes to us with arguments that make sense. If you dismiss the clear teaching of God's word, if you regard who Jesus, disregard who Jesus is in the elemental teachings, the fundamental teachings of the gospel, and we're going to look at some of these plausible arguments in weeks to come. But I want you to recognize that Paul says these are empty deceit. They're according to the world's principles. They're not according to Christ. So please hear me. We live in a day that constructs convincing, plausible arguments to paint sin and rebellion in the colors of virtue. I mean, let's face it. Why shouldn't someone be free to love whoever they love, Right? That sounds, of course, yeah. Well, what if it's a same-sex relationship? Or what if it's you love someone who you're not married, who's already married to someone else? Or any number of other uh, teachings or activities that Scripture clearly forbids. But, but we love each other. And this is my soulmate. And, and, and there it goes, right? <clears throat> it sounds plausible, but God says no. God says this is wrong, this is sin. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We hear words like diversity and inclusion and tolerance and love, and they're plausible. They, they, they influence people, and they deceive people about the truth because they're rooted in human reasoning and traditions rather than in Christ. And I want you to see verse 8, these, these human traditions aim to take you captive. Again, verse 8 
See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world, world and not according to Christ. Now, the ESV translates, translates it elemental spirits, but the footnote says elemental principles, and I think that's probably a better, uh, a clearer uh, uh, focus of what Paul means in that context. <clears throat> But this take captive is the idea of an army coming in, invading, and plundering your treasure. And it's not so much coming in and carrying you off as captive, although it could be that. It's coming in and plundering your treasure and taking that off. Don't let the enemy come in and take off, take away from you that which is most precious, that which is of infinite value. Don't be defrauded by the lies of the enemy who would seek to convince you of things that are utterly contrary to Scripture. Don't let the enemy rob you of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden, verse 3 tells us, in Christ. Well, that's the first major point. The peril is these, these human philosophies and traditions. Well, the, the, the provision, secondly, is those treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are rooted in Christ. What's the point of philosophy or any belief system? Any belief system, any value system, the purpose or the point is they profess to offer you a path to truth, to happiness, to fulfillment, to life that actually is worth leading. That's true of the gospel, and that's true of false religions. These philosophies, these beliefs uh, are intended to lead you in a path of fulfillment. And the message comes, says, here is wisdom, here is knowledge. If you drink from this fountain, you will find fulfillment. Jesus made that very statement in John chapter 17. Out of whoever believes in me, out of him will flow rivers of living water. But in Jeremiah chapter 2, he says, we, God says something to Jeremiah that should shake every one of us. He says, verse 13, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out or they've dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, I don't know if you've gone to this water fountain back here in the hallway and you push the button and nothing happens. <laughs> I'm not sure why. Uh, it's very unsatisfying, right? I, I, I preach a sermon, I'm parched, I go there to grab, and there's nothing. I'm thankful that somebody left me a bottle of water here. Thank you. Broken cisterns that hold no water are useless. They promise something they can never, ever fulfill. And that's what people have done. They've, they've, they've abandoned the fountain of living water, the Lord Jesus himself, and they've turned to other things that will leave them empty and unsatisfied. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the fountain of living water. In John chapter 14, in the upper room discourse, Philip says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Show us where you're going. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, by the modern way of thinking, that would be evaluated as an incredibly bigoted statement. My friend who posted on Facebook would say, that is hateful and judgmental and not very Christ-like. Coming out of the mouth of Christ. You see the problem. But the world, the world value system would find Jesus intolerably narrow-minded. 
In Matthew chapter 7, he says to his disciples, enter the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And there are times that the narrow way is really difficult. And the broad way is so much more appealing. But Jesus preached a narrow way and said, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. If you reject this fountain of living water, and if you drink from any other cistern or any other supposed fountain, what you will find is you'll come up dry and empty. It may look inviting at the beginning. It may look refreshing. It may sound plausible and all those other wonderful accolades. But in the end, you'll find it's a broken cistern that holds no water, and you'll come away empty. Why would you do that? Reason, the reason that the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ is because he's God. Look at verse 19. Excuse me, verse 9. For in him, the Lord Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who's the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is not simply a great teacher. He's not simply a great example that people should follow. Those are true. He's the promised Messiah, prophet, priest, and king. He is the Son of God who is one with the Father. He is God in human flesh. John 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you get off track here at the deity of Jesus Christ, you are in perilous waters. If you lose sight of the deity of Christ, it's irrecoverable until you come back there. In John 1, again, verse 14, uh, we read, the Word became flesh. That's Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh. He became incarnate. And He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. There's that fullness term again that Paul picks up on in Colossians 2. And then in chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus speaking to Jews who had come to believe in him. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Colossians 2.9 tells us the whole fullness of deity, the, uh, the, uh, of, of deity, that godness, as it were, was Christ. Jesus is truly God. And also truly, man, the eternal God, the Son, second person of the Trinity, at a definite point in time, took to himself human flesh, became man, lived on this earth, manifested the glory of God, perfectly obeyed God's law, died on the cross to pay for our sins, rose triumphant over sin and death, ascended to heaven, never to die again. And while he was walking on this earth, he continued to maintain not only a human nature, but a divine nature. And that continues to this day. In our catechism, the Baptist catechism that we embrace, it's, it's a uh, word-for-word same as the Westminster Shorter Catechism in many instances. But the question uh, is asked, who's the only redeemer of God's elect? And the answer is this, the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man. And so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures, one person forever. So Jesus retains his human nature 
and his eternal divine nature, one person forever. And verse 10 tells us he is the head over all rule and authority. And you make that statement in many academic settings, college classrooms, or in many public media settings, and you'll be laughed at because they think their authority is so much greater. Psalm 2 tells us the kings of the earth uh, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. But Revelation says those kings will be crying out on the great day of judgment. They'll be crying out for the rocks and hills to fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. The message this world gives us is that Christians are the biggest losers in the world. They embrace a Jesus of their own making who is not God, who did not die to pay for sins, who does not call men to repent, and who gets us. God's word says the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus Christ. He's the head over every rule, over every authority, and every knee one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is really important. Don't miss this part. God has provided for us not just a source of truth. It says in verse 10, you have been filled in him. Yes, all the the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. He is the way and the truth of life. But it's not enough to be properly informed about Jesus. It's glorious that everything about him is true. It's glorious that he is the faithful prophet revealing the Father to us. But even more glorious is that we are united to him. We are filled. We have been filled in Christ. What does that mean, to be filled? It says you have been filled, verse 10, in him. Well, John 7, verses 37 and 38, Jesus stands up in the middle of a great festival, and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There's a fullness that comes only in Christ. And that is a gracious provision God has made for every single one of us. That fullness means that we have all that we need, all the gifts, all the graces. We have access to a throne of grace where we go before the Lord, our great high priest, and receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Hear me. If you're empty, if you're dry and disappointed and disillusioned, you're easy prey for plausible arguments. And so we must go back not just to the truths of the gospel, but to the Christ of the gospel. And when our hearts are, 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 when we're consciously enjoying this fullness in Christ, our hearts are secure in him. There are times we go through struggling times where we don't consciously experience that fullness, but it doesn't mean it's not true still. Even when you don't feel it, you have it because the Holy Spirit dwells in you and it's the privilege, it's the birthright of every single man, woman, boy, and girl who's experienced the new birth. Now, the tense of this verse in verse 10 is very interesting. It says, you have been filled in him. And that's a perfect tense, a little grammar lesson here. Perfect tense in the Greek language means it's an accomplished fact and the results of it continue. So you have been filled, and it's passive, means it's something God did. You didn't have to go do it yourself. You have been filled, and the results of that continue to the present day 
and forward. You may not feel it. And that's why Paul reminds us. If we felt it all the time, he wouldn't need to remind us of that, right? But it does emphasize the importance that you and I cultivate a a close walk with the Lord, a close relationship with the Lord, not in order to gain something we don't yet have, but to fully enjoy that which God has already given to us. Paul prays in verse 2 for the believers in Colossae and Laodicea, that their hearts might be encouraged. And that idea means that their hearts might be infused with courage to stand firm against these errors, that their hearts would be fortified with the truth as it is revealed in Jesus. But in verse 2, look again, it emphasizes something very important here, that their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love, the communal community aspect of the Christian life. We are not to go it alone. We're to be involved in one another's lives, encouraging one another, praying for one another, greeting one another, serving one another in love, forgiving one another, helping one another, and all the rest. But that corporate aspect of Christian truth is so very important because if you're all all by yourself, again, you're vulnerable to the lies of the enemy. But in the context of mutual love, there's safety and numbers. Our hearts are encouraged and fortified. And the goal of that is that we might reach the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Jesus is the mystery, that which was hidden for a long time, but now has been revealed. There was this messianic hope. Who is the Messiah? Who is he going to be? What's he going to be like? What's he going to do? That was revealed that it was going, he was going to come, but nobody knew exactly what that would look like. And now that mystery has been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in vital union with Christ that we have through the gospel, we have this fullness. We have this true understanding and knowledge. But when we deviate from Christ, from the clear teaching about Jesus, we end up in delusion and error. And no matter how, how uh, plausible it may sound, you just have to remember that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't come with a, a big warning sign saying, I'm a false teacher trying to destroy your faith. He disguises himself as an angel of light. So we need to be careful, be on guard. So the peril is the philosophies of this world and empty deceit. The provision is a treasure of wisdom and knowledge that are ours in Christ. And the third thing I want you to see this morning in this text is the priority is firmness of faith in Christ. Look again at verses 5 through 7. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I want you to notice the warning here about not being deluded, not being taken captive, not being deceived. It's written to Christians. People who have received this fullness. People who have been rooted and established in Christ. And the warning says to you and to me, if you're a Christian, we could still be deceived. We could still be uh, uh, plundered of that which is most precious, as it were, if we're not on guard. But the surest safeguard for us is that our faith is firmly established in Christ, that we're filled with Christ, that we continue to walk in Christ. Paul mentions actually five safeguards here that I want you to focus your attention on as we seek to approach the airport and land the plane, as it were. The first is firmness 
of faith in verse 5. It's the idea of steadfastness. It's, it's, it's a faith, uh, it's, it's sticking with that foundation. You have a solid foundation that's been laid. Don't wander away from it. Whatever assaults may come on the truth, we don't waver. Now, what is faith? People talk about, well, my faith helped me. No, my faith didn't help me at all. Christ helped me. <laughs> the fact I trusted him was a good thing, but he's the one who helps. Faith itself is just the receiving. It's believing and trusting in Christ. Now, we can believe and trust in other things that aren't real, but the firmness of our faith is believing and trusting Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us, not just believing objective truths, but actually trusting the person, Jesus Christ. And even if the world all around us rejects him, rejects his word, we hold fast to Christ. Now, let me make no mistake here. There are unbelievers who are very skilled at making Christians look foolish, and they delight to do so. It's a, it's a, it's a, form, it's a hobby for some people to find Christians and make us look stupid. Because they can shape the argument, they can shape the discussion in such a way that those looking on don't understand what their presuppositions are and what our presuppositions are, and they can manipulate the conversation in such a way that we look really foolish. And we have to just be aware that's the world in which we live. And we have to be willing to engage this world in love and grace and humility, but with a firm faith. So that's the first safeguard, firmness of faith. Secondly, continuing to walk in Christ, verse 6. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. It's not enough to, to know the word. It's not enough to, to, to believe sound theology. It's not enough to, to uh, embrace the confession and memorize scripture and all the rest. That's very important. But we must walk in Christ. We must walk with Christ. This word walk in the New Testament speaks to our manner of life the way you live, which speaks not just to your behavior, but to what you value, what you prize, and what you believe, what you approve of. That has to do with your way of life, your walk. It encompasses everything that you allow to influence your heart and your life. And if you walk in Christ and you place yourself under his holy influence, you'll be safe, you'll be secure, and you'll be fulfilled. But if you Place yourself under the influence of this world. Your way of life is, is not clinging firmly to Christ. You're in danger. This idea of walking, it's the same idea we find in John 15 when Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Walking in him is the same idea as abiding in Christ, drawing our sustenance, drawing our strength, drawing our resources from him. So that's the second safeguard that we cultivate a vibrant walk, way of life in close communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. The third safeguard is that we're rooted and built up in him. Rooted is the idea of a tree that the roots go down deep. So the wind blows and all kinds of things happen, but that tree doesn't waver. It's rooted firmly. It's solid. It's unmovable, meaning we've been firmly established in Christ. That's that perfect tense I talked about, it's a completed act, and it's continuing to this day. We're firmly established in Christ. But the next word, built up in him, is a present tense, meaning continually being built up in Christ. 
It's a term that Paul uses many times in the epistles to speak of Christians growing in our faith and uses even the metaphor of we're a building being built together to a holy temple of the Lord. But here built up is passive. It's something God does. We don't build ourselves up, although we have a lot of responsibility in the process of growing in grace. But ultimately, God is the one who works in us to build us up. We're called to walk in Christ, to hold fast to Him, to grow in grace, but ultimately God is the one who actually builds us up. That's the third safeguard. The fourth is that we should be established in the faith. Now, these last two uh, that I looked at, these safeguards speak of the vitality of our relationship with Christ, walking in Him, being built up in Him. This one is more about our depth of understanding, of our insight into the truths of the faith understanding and believing and an and, and insight into the gospel. Ephesians 4 speaks to the purpose of pastors and teachers and apostles that were in the first generation giving us the word. Ephesians 4 says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. There's that word, building up. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness, there's that word fullness that he uses, of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Do you see it? One of the primary roles that we have as pastors and elders, shepherds, is to build you up in your faith so that you won't be led astray. So you won't be tossed around like children. Children are not mature. And so they're easily deceived. They're gullible. Parents, how many times have your your children seen a commercial and and, and that that glitzy commercial convinces them we have to go out right now and buy the latest thing that that was advertised on TV? And you're looking at it going, why do I even have a TV, right? But children are easily deceived. And immature believers who are not firm in our faith, who are not established in the truths of the Word, can be susceptible to plausible arguments. So we need to teach and preach God's Word line by line. And I would urge you, make every, take advantage of every opportunity to sit under the teaching of the Word, whether it's in Sunday school, morning, evening, Wednesday, whenever we're discussing God's Word, be in the Word yourself, in your families. Take in the Word and develop more and more a firm hold of the faith as it is given to us in Jesus. So that's the fourth safeguard. The fifth one is abounding in thanksgiving. A a thankful heart is a steadfast heart. An ungrateful heart is a vulnerable and straying heart. But when a heart is abounding in thanksgiving, it's not looking for something different. It's not easily turned aside. So thankfulness is a major factor in spiritual health and in spiritual vitality and stability. That's why we read in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. What is God's will for you? Well, one thing I know his will is, is to give thanks in all circumstances. Doesn't say for all circumstances. Doesn't say we give thanks for the terrible things that happen in our lives, but give thanks that even in the midst of those terrible things, God is with us and accomplishing a good purpose in our lives. Giving thanks is not just a good idea. It is God's will. It's a matter of obedience. Now, if you are always abounding 
with the feeling of thankfulness, would Paul need to tell us that we needed to do that? No, because we're already doing it. The reality is we don't always feel grateful. We don't always feel thankful. There are a host of reasons why that may be. But we should give thanks even when we don't feel particularly grateful. But the ideal is that we're abounding in thanksgiving, that we're overflowing with gratitude to God. And the time will come when we are and will be forever. But Christian, brother, sister, please, I urge you, strive to cultivate a grateful heart. The old hymn, count your blessings one by one. You'll be amazed at what God has done. And a grateful heart begins with humility. Who am I that I would be given such wonderful, gracious gifts? As opposed to pride and entitlement that says, I deserve better than this. Do you see? Humility leads us to gratitude. So if these five safeguards are in place and are vibrantly active in your life, that you're firm in your faith, you're walking in Christ or abiding in Christ, that you're rooted and built up in Christ, you're established in the faith and you're abounding in thanksgiving, you will not be shaken. You will not be easy prey to the plausible arguments of man-made traditions and human philosophies that deny the reality of Christ. So, Christian, I want you to see and appreciate afresh what has God given to you in Jesus Christ. He's given you his precious word. He's given you the glorious body of truth that we can immerse ourselves in and that we can fill our minds with to develop what we'll be talking about in future weeks, a biblical worldview. He's given us his law, his gospel. He's revealed to us his character. He's revealed to us his son and his glory. But he's given us the person, the Lord Jesus, our Redeemer, the fountain of living water, our great high priest. And he's given us the church, the body of Christ, where we can encourage each other and build each other up, and we can be knit together in love. These are precious gifts that God has given to us, all in Christ. And if you will make use of those gifts, they will be a great safeguard for you against the enemy. But hear me, we don't simply want to be on the defensive. This series is not about let's develop a fortress mentality and not let the enemy in. We don't want to let the enemy in, but we want to go out. Remember, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates of hell are meant to keep us from impacting the world. It's not something that the gates of hell don't attack us, right? Uh, We're to go out and make an impact on the world around us. We don't want to simply have this fortress mentality where we keep ourselves from all of these things. We want to draw close to Jesus. We want to walk closely with him, hold fast to Jesus, and we want to have the kind of impact on the world around us that Jesus had in his day. And we want to delight in who he is and what he's done for us. And when we do that, we'll be steadfast. I want to speak to those who are here this morning that you're not a Christian. And you know that you're not a Christian for whatever reason. Maybe you're young and you just think, I've got time. Maybe you're an adult and you just have never been truly convinced. Or maybe you grew up in church, but you have been going through what they call a deconstruction of your faith. And we're going to talk about that in future weeks as well. But I would say to you, based on what God's Word says, you are already deceived in your thinking. The Bible presents Jesus as the fountain of living water, but you have, ref- you have forsaken that fountain and you've dug out broken cisterns and they're not going to hold any water for you. They'll leave you dry and empty 
Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And if you're going any other way, if you're adhering to any other personally adopted con- uh, uh, concept of the truth, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find life anywhere else because you've embraced man-made philosophies. They're empty. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus died for sinners. He died for people who are confused to give us light and to give us truth and to give us life. And he invites all who come to him. Anyone who comes to me, I'll never, ever cast away. So he invites you. Why would you not come? Why would you continue to go day after day after day to those broken cisterns that hold no water when the fountain of living water says, come and drink freely of the water of life? The invitation is to you if you're not already a believer. In a moment, we're going to sing a closing hymn. Hast thou seen him, heard him, known him? And I want you to pay special attention to the, cor- to the chorus because this is where I want us to, to land captivated by his beauty worthy tribute haste to bring with let his peerless worth constrain thee crown him now unrivaled king